This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Don't change that dial. It's time for Navigating the Newsroom. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Andrew. Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to episode number 16 of Navigating the Newsroom with Andrew and Andrew. I'm Andrew Johnson, and this is the show on Film Geek Radio devoted exclusively to discussion and analysis of the HBO TV series, The Newsroom. My regular co-host, Andrew Robinson, will not be joining me this episode. Unfortunately, he had something crop up at the last minute, and he had to back out. However, I am privileged to be joined by a special guest this week. He is the editor of DearFilm.net and a writer for the film stage. You can also hear him discuss movies and pop culture on two podcasts, Outside the Envelope and the Film Stage Show. Brian Rowan, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. This week, we are going to be discussing the third episode of season two of the newsroom. The episode is titled Willie Pete. It was written by Michael Gunn, Elizabeth Peterson, and Aaron Sorkin, and it was directed by Leslie Linka Gladder. This is not a spoiler free podcast, so if you are not caught up with the newsroom and don't want us to ruin it for you, stop listening now. Normally, I would have my co-host, Andrew Robinson, give everyone a quick reminder about what happened on this episode, but since he is not here, Brian, do you mind summarizing what happened? So, the most recent episode of the newsroom finds our staff uh, with a newly invigorated Will McAvoy, so he's kind of gone back on the warpath against the far right wing of American politics. This, of course, brings him into conflict with the upper management, who kind of initiate a leak of a story about how he was removed from the September 11th coverage. This leads him to reconnect with Nina, who was the gossip colonist from last year. And on top of having you know, their professional spat, they kind of strike up a brand new friendship. Uh, at the same time, Jim is still on the road with the Romney campaign and still trying to rabble-rouse to get some more informed statements out of the people that are working for the campaign. Maggie is still moving towards Africa and is beginning to take her medication for malaria and the like, and is drafted by Dantana to help with the research into Operation Genoa, which is the possibly presidency-ending military operation that he has been pursuing the last couple of episodes, and Mac is involved in a tertiary sense in just about every one of those I like how you called the Will-Nina relationship a friendship. They're certainly buddies, though I'm not sure I would call them friends. Yeah, I, I think part of it is the way that they're acting it, and part of it is the way that it's written, but I really have no idea how to quantify them. Yeah, that to me was probably the weakest element of this episode. But overall, let me ask you, Brian, um, since this is your first time on the show, what do you think of the newsroom as a whole so far? And what did you think of this episode in particular? Well, I've seen a lot of Aaron Sorkin's work. Uh, I've watched all of his television shows. I'm a fan of most of the movies he's written. And this is definitely like the Frankenstein's monster of everything <laughs> that he's ever done. So it's compelling to watch this shambling patchwork of all of his previous work lurch forward. But at the same time, sometimes it's hilarious and sometimes it's groan-inducing. The first season had a very cohesive, very high-minded, fairy tale, awful note behind it that made it kind of my weekly hate watch. So you're one of, you're one of those critics. I am one of those people. And actually, okay. I was, I was going to say, Devendra last week when he was on, 
brought up the point that it's kind of difficult to know at what point hate watching just becomes enjoying something. But there's a cathartic anger and like a sense of 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 anguish when you're watching something like that. Yeah, kind of lets you know that you're not really enjoying it. But at the same time, I I got something out of it, and it wasn't as though I were watching I don't know princesses that that new MTV reality show that's apparently awful. <laughs> I mean, I'm getting something out of it, and because it fits into the over that um, Aaron Sorkin has, I can see how it fits into his larger works. This new season has been really weird for me because it feels like he's making very conscious course corrections from some of the criticisms that he received last year. And while some of them are good, the general tone isn't syncing up with the characters he's already created. So it's become more fascinating to watch, and I think it's become a slightly better show. But at the same time, it's now become less interesting to watch because it doesn't have that same kind of mythic disaster quality that i had to <laughs> okay are you so are you saying that you're, you're no longer hate watching the show you're just watching it and now i'm just kind of like entranced by it there's okay. a good show in there and i think that's one of the reasons i keep coming back to it like i hate watched the jersey shore for a while but after a while with that show you you know the rhythms and you know even though it's a quote-unquote reality show you still know what's going to happen, and it basically follows a script, and those people become caricatures more than characters. But, like, with the newsroom, there's the potential there. And so it's that potential that keeps me coming back and keeps me thinking about it. It's really weird, because when people say, you know, do you watch it? Yeah, do you like it? I really, I like what it could be. <laughs> it fits in with the overall message of the show. Yeah, that's an interesting point, yeah. <laughs> it's a fairy tale about what the news could be. And in my own personal world, I would make a show about someone trying to make the newsroom what it could be. It's interesting you say that because I, f- I definitely feel like that's what season one was. This is what the news could be. This is what the news should be. And I'm one of the few people that actually kind of liked overall how preachy and high-minded it was. It definitely had flaws, but ov- the, the overall tone and vibe kind of won me over at the end of the day. And so far, there hasn't been quite as much of that in season two, and I feel like Aaron Sorkin is consciously kind of turning away from the idea that, oh, I'm going to show what the news should be, to I'm going to show to a certain extent what the news actually is. And I think we got a lot of that in this episode. Yeah, and I think part of his problem with that is that I don't think he knows how the news is done. Yeah. There was such a sense of like, and I, this is something that's gotten up, brought up a lot, so I don't want to spend too much time on it, but it's, it's all taking place in the past. So there's no sense of people scrambling forward blindly in the dark, many hands, you know, touching the walls, trying to figure out where they're going. It's these people who are imbued with a sense of moral and intellectual rightness, and you're just waiting for them to school everyone else. Well, that's been something that's interesting about this season is because we know ultimately they're not going to be able to school anyone ultimately they're going to screw up. But even though that's true, and that it could be an interesting thing, it's taken the only news story that we don't know the way it turns out, and it's told us how it turns out. Right. (laughs) Yeah, that's been my biggest complaint so far with the the Genoa stuff, is we already know what happens, so it's not quite as suspenseful. Right. And which is weird, because they really seem to be pushing this idea, and all these characters are watching in this kind of odd, like, insanity, how this completely impossible news story suddenly starts to become probable but we all know 
what's happening. So we're 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 not sitting there like, oh wow, like maybe this guy's right. It's like no, the wingbat lunatic who told you this is obviously wrong, and you're still wrong. And it's going to be, I think, interesting later on to see when they finally decide to pull the trigger on it. Still not going to be able to support them because I know it's wrong. Well, overall, how do you think this third episode compares to the first two episodes of this season? Better, worse? I think it's, um, I think it's a step in the right direction. The first episode I watched basically mouth agape the entire time because it was just it was weird to be back there. And I think starting from that new opening credit sequence, it took me right. a moment to find my bearings because I knew the type of thing that I had seen before, and suddenly it wasn't there anymore. And the first episode had that that framing device, the flashback, and it kind of really did set up this mounting sense of dread. You got to see Maggie with her hair chopped off, and you got to see Will and Mackenzie. For some reason, this is something Aaron Sorkin loves to do. He loves to have characters who are in a primal situation of danger just be completely flippant with the only person who's on their side just because they've arbitrarily decided that they don't like that person. Right. <laughs> People are probably facing like jail time, federal indictments, and a multi-million dollar lawsuit, and they're just making jokes with this lawyer because they don't like her. But I can get past that. It's a TV show. You need the witty banter, and he's good at witty banter. I mean, you can't get around that. So that was a good episode. But then the second episode didn't revisit the framing device. So I just adjusted myself mentally to that. But the second episode did have a lot of positive momentum in terms of the, the Genoa story and what it was doing with the relationships between the characters. Because another thing that the second season seems to be trying to do is just tear down using tooth and claw all of the framework for these awful relationships that no one ever really got to care about. Right. Yeah, and they both felt like they had a propulsive through line. You know, there was setting up the premise of, of Genoa and how they were going to find out about it initially. And then there was Will finally getting his balls back, I guess, during the second episode. This didn't really have much of that. This was more deconstruction and reconstruction. So it wasn't as focused, but I think that the promise that it breathed into the show helped a lot. I agree with you. I actually think this is probably the strongest episode of the season so far. You're right that there wasn't very much of a driving propulsive force behind it. It did feel in some ways like it's just setting certain things in motion, but it felt the most narratively and tonally consistent to me of the season so far. And overall, I, I really liked what it set up and how it handled a lot of these uh, storylines that it's been developing. I like that we finally got some extended time with Jim on the campaign trail, and now it looks like that's probably going to be a really, really major subplot moving forward. I think it'll be good to get out of the newsroom <laughs> for a while. That'll act as kind of a nice change in scenery. So I'm looking forward to that. And I actually really like how they handled some of the corporate stuff involving the land scenes, which we'll get to later on in this episode. That, that'll probably act as part of our main topic this episode. But overall, yeah, I really, really liked it. So let's start talking specifics. Last week when we had Devendra on the show, our main topic was all the relationship stuff and the huge blowout that happened and how everything seemed chaotic. 
Um, and it's all falling apart for Maggie. Rightfully. I'm kind of sad I wasn't on for that episode because... I mean, you're more than welcome to talk about it now. <laughs> I loved watching that happen because their, their nonsensical, like, childish kind of flirtation and the way that it culminated in that, I like it, it, it's not the type of thing that could happen without consequences. And I like that they're being realistic about the consequences. Yeah. Which is one of the things that's kind of gotten back on the show's level. When Lisa delivers that takedown. Yeah, I, I think she's the strongest female character on the show. And I wish that she popped up more often. But this episode, they didn't really touch on any of the relationship stuff at all. Which was also kind of nice because that's just been so present episode after episode it was nice to kind of get away from that and sure you've got a few scenes with don and sloan but there's nothing overly flirtatious about their their scenes together and it just seemed like a pretty relationship free episode with the exception of some of the will and max stuff go on in okay so what do you What's happening here? Uh, I started by putting tires on my chair. Tires? Little tires. They go in your chair, they give you better traction to zip around the room, and then there were some parts that were squeaking, so I got some WD-40, and here I am. Are you going to be able to put this back together? Yeah, I'm good with my hands. I'm handy, mechanical. What can I do for you? I'm having a tough time with Zane. Aren't you always having a tough time with him? Not because of me. I'm delightful. Here's the thing. Lockheed is a good buy right now because they make the Hellfire missile, which is shot out of a Predator drone. I'm advising my viewers not to buy the stock. You just said it was a good buy. It's a great buy if you like money. But you think it's an immoral stock? I do. You know why? Yeah, because they make drone missiles. You get me. And Zane doesn't want you to go on the air and say that. That's close. You already went on the air and said it, and now Zane's pissed. That's exactly it, yeah. Okay, personally, I think that your position is commendable, but you have to listen to your EP. Okay. Right. And one more thing. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I'm the leak. The Don and Sloan stuff was blissfully free of another Sorkin trope, which is like two minutes of very quick, rapid-fire, declarative statements regarding the actual job that these people are doing, followed by a non-sequitur question about their personal lives. He does like to do that. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, it, w- it was really nice. Um, but since, I mean, since we're on the topic of the relationship stuff, the you know, the, the Will Mac storyline and their whole history was something that was kind of, it it felt kind of clunky to me in season one. I mean, it's a very common Sorkin trope that we've seen before, uh, you know, in shows like Studio 60, for example. I think it's been in every single one of them. Probably has. In Sports Night, it was um, Casey and Dana. Yes. In the West Wing, it was Toby and his wife, who was a senator. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're right. And also, there's like one random episode where Sam Seaborn, his ex-fiance, who happens to be a writer for Vanity Fair, I think, shows up. Right. Like, that that's just something he loves to do. Like, let's get these two crazy kids back together and see how they're operating on a professional level. And it never works. He, he, he seems to love that idea of two people who were supposedly meant to be together, but it didn't work out. Well, maybe they actually are meant to be together, so they're going to end back up together. And often that'll just be going on in the background of of a lot of his shows. I'm glad that they didn't really hammer that in this episode. It's it's They touch on it, but it seems to mainly have served to just kind of play into the Will-Nina relationship which I, I have issues with but it's it's certainly an interesting direction to take the show it is I, especially since i just assumed she was never going to come back am i about to be murdered 
You look good, Nina. Are you sure the AWM executive dining room is the safest place to meet? I am. I've had it closed. You came in through the freight entrance and rode the elevator alone, except for this gentleman who's a former New York City police detective. You have that kind of muscle? Uh, right now, you have that kind of muscle, but I don't want to talk to you about power today. I want to talk to you about something else. Come on over and sit down. Would you like a mimosa? What? Champagne and orange juice. Yes, I know what it is. Pierre, a mimosa for Ms. Howard, please. No pulp, correct? Yes. I learned that on Facebook. No pulp. Right away. Is his name really Pierre? No. What's going on? I'm glad you asked. I don't think anybody would have. You can start a revolution, Nina. You can fire the shot heard round the world. And that's an apt analogy. Because no one knows which side the guy was on who fired the shot. But nonetheless, it led to a revolution that it was good that we won. Well, yeah. I have no idea what you're talking about. I didn't about. have the flu. We felt that with the controversy created by my remarks about the Tea Party, the 9-11 anniversary coverage should be handled by someone else. And so Sloan Sabbath and Elliot Hirsch anchored and I pretended to have the flu. You forgot to say we're off the record. We're not. We're on the record. I assumed that she might show up, but honestly, the main problem I have with the Will-Nina relationship is that I just don't understand why she would be with him, because clearly he doesn't respect her and what she does. So I'm, I'm assuming at this point she's just sleeping with him so she can hopefully get the inside scoop. I think I actually had a nightmare slash dream where that happened. <laughs> <laughs> I had this very vivid dream about this happening, and then I was like, maybe that was like a really rapid plot point at the end that I missed. <laughs> but no, apparently I just thought about that, and it just like worked its way into my subconscious. <laughs> well, they are they are sleeping together, but her motives are still a bit unclear. Well, that's the weird thing. In this episode, she says, um, "I wanted to go out with you like when, at at New Year's when you like denigrated my profession." Right. And it's just like, but why? Like, is that like, like, is Will exercising the game? Like, was that him negging her? And like, now she's all, all about Will. I don't, I don't know. Oh, well, I, I thought she meant that she wanted to go out with him until he started to denigrate her profession. And then she threw the drink in his face. <laughs> the whole drink throwing thing that went through that particular episode was awful. And then Mac has carried it into the new season. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, like, I don't know. I honestly have no idea. Yeah, she acknowledges in this episode that he denigrated her profession, and also she knows that he's still in love with Mackenzie. So the only reason I can think that she would sleep with him is that she she wants the inside scoop. She's going to use that to her advantage. I mean, it's either that or just, like, she's got some psychological thing where getting right. him into bed is winning. Right. He may hate me in my profession, but he still wants to sleep with me. Oh, that's true. But I mean, like, that's that's some deep, twisted psychological stuff, and Sorkin <laughs> doesn't usually go in for that. That's true. Maybe you're uh, giving him more credit than you should. His characters are interesting, but their motives are never that true to life. Like, he operates on a level of fiction that is very much, you know, fairy tale and stock characters archetypes done very well, but... You know, all of his TV stuff, he's never had anyone who really toes the line like that. So it would be a very strange tonal shift for him to have someone like that. I'm really concerned that this voicemail is going to just stay there in the background for every season until the end. And then suddenly 
it'll be like, oh, I said that I loved you, and they'll get back together, and that's how the show will end. And I just really do not want them to drag it out <laughs> for that long. Well, that's my other thing. Like, his whole issue with Mac, I don't know a single real human who would act the way that he does. You know, okay, so she slept with her ex for a couple months before they broke up. And she, I believe, has, has explained this to him, and he understands it. And yet, he's keeping her around and, and holding this over her head. And he wants to be with her, but he will not allow himself to be with her. But he still needs her in his life and available because he's hated everyone she's ever been with. It toes the line I, I, between, like, unlikable and, like, gruff and, like, a guy who needs to figure himself out to just sociopath. Yeah, I, I can understand it to a certain level, mainly just because Will's an asshole. You know, I can I can buy that he would hold a grudge against her because she cheated on him. I can buy that that would would cause some tension between them. I can I can buy that he would still be in love with her despite all that. And I can logically grasp that okay, Will's the type of guy he left this voicemail, he doesn't want to reveal it to her. Because he wants that power over her. He, he wants to hold that, to always hold that card. He doesn't want to be the vulnerable one. So I can understand that, and it makes sense to me. It's just not always very entertaining to watch. I mean, it's, it's a level of emotional manipulation. Like, if you were in a relationship and your girlfriend were to cheat on you, and then you kept her... Not just because you still loved her, but also because you knew that now you basically had carte blanche to do whatever you want. Right. Because now you can just be like, oh, well, remember that time you cheated on me? Right. And, like, that's just a mean, abusive, terrible thing to do to someone. And he's doing it sort of. Yeah. Their relationship, I, know, I don't want more of it in the show, but they could do a better job of really tightening it up and defining the parameters and what each of their endgame is. Yeah, I think that's a lot of the problem here is that the end game seems to be, at least from what we've seen, oh, Will and Mac will end up together, Jim and Maggie will end up together, they're meant for each other. And I think the show overall would be a lot better if that didn't seem like such a foregone conclusion. Right, especially since because the only reason these people seem to be drawn to each other is because that is the foregone conclusion. I almost defy you to tell me why Jim is interested in Maggie. I can buy that he would be interested in her because she's the attractive intern slash assistant who was thrust into this situation and is now professionally working her way up and shows a lot of talent. I would firmly disagree with you on the talent thing, but, but go ahead. Well, to give her some credit, I, I mean, she is the weakest character on the show, but to give her some credit... She did stick around when everyone else left, and she does seem like she's trying. <laughs> I'll give her an A for effort. So I, I can buy that he might be attracted to her. I'm not sure I can buy that, that that relationship is so important that it be drawn out over the course of several seasons. His heartbreak was so complete that he had to run away to Connecticut. Not Connecticut, New Hampshire. That first episode, he seemed devastated. Well, to, I mean, okay, to be fair, I typically don't defend a lot of the romance stuff on the show, but to be fair, she had basically promised that she would be with him. 
and then backed out at the last minute, which which is a little bit unfair and manipulative. And and he got his hopes up, and he was disappointed. I don't know. A lot of these characters, the way that they act, I'm, it's cute in a vacuum, but like, and this is one of the reasons why Lisa's takedown last week was so cathartic and wonderful, was because like these two people, Jim and Maggie, are basically destroying this poor innocent young woman's life (laughs) that's brutal it's mean and that's why lisa is such a great character because she knows that and she won't put up with it so yeah i and also i will defend jim leaving the newsroom to go on the campaign trail just because it's so nice to just again like i said get out of the newsroom (laughs) every once in a while like even if he didn't have this horrible situation with maggie there's a part of me that with that thinks well yeah maybe someone after being around will and mac and all that drama for so long maybe they would need a break (laughs) if he had positioned it like i need to get away from all of you (laughs) you are also poisoned now so i need to go somewhere else yeah. <laughs> I loved the fact that there was fallout from Will calling the Tea Party the American Taliban. Yeah. That was like the hero moment of last season. Yeah. Brother, you can't do that. Like, that's really messed up. So I'm glad that there was fallout for that because, again, that kind of grounded the show back a little bit. But he, he, he basically is back at square one this week because the show opens up with him condemning people to hell. Wait, remind me. How, how does it open? The show opens with the montage of the um, presidential candidate. Oh, right. Yeah. Saying how much we su- should support the troops. And then he shows the part where the, the gay soldier asked the question about, you know, the uh, don't ask, don't tell policy and everything. And then it cuts to the, the, the arena, I guess, con- convention room where this is happening. And, like, you hear, like, three isolated boos that are... right. Quickly sussed out, and then he, like, says, those people are going to burn in hell, but not soon enough. So he's now wished death and damnation upon these people. <laughs> it's just weird. It's it can't I can't quite get behind that much of a go-back to how he used to be. This episode's weird, because in some ways, I think it is trying to be, like that first season, where it is trying to have Will McAvoy or the people in this newsroom as the heroes that say what we feel like the media should be saying, and they they are kind of heroic. But at the same time, it is also trying to keep things fairly grounded and and say, well, you can't necessarily get away with that. But that's the other thing. I don't... I'm a journalism major, so I may be coming at this from a personal place, but I don't feel like that's what the news is. And I know that when they showed it, it was under, like, the comment. Like, it was his comment. It was his editorial to close out the day. But, like, you were, he, he's constantly saying that his ethos now is to try to destroy the meanness and the bitchiness. But his only weapons against the bitchiness of people booing at a gay soldier seems to be more bitchiness. Yeah, that is a problem. I, I agree with you there. As a as a journalist myself, there was a part of me that was thinking, wait, would he really devote so much time to this, to the fact that people booed at the debate? But then I realized, okay, as you mentioned, it is kind of his little editorial at the end. And the character of Will is arguably largely based on Keith Olbermann, who would he, he he used to always do that he used to always have his uh closing remarks or whatever where he would 
basically give his own opinion and and be snarky about it. it it's weird because I, I I remember when that happened, and I did not watch a lot of TV news at the time, so I don't know how the major news outlets covered it on television, but I do know that at least online, it was kind of a big deal. Oh yeah, it was a massive big deal online, and I, I, I didn't do the research to find this out, but I think I remember hearing that like after the, the thing, like people had actually asked the candidates about it, and like none of them had heard it. Right. Yeah, and I think after the I think after the fact, yes, yeah, some of the candidates did say that that it wasn't appropriate and et cetera, et cetera. I went to a Q and A session yesterday in like a sixty person movie theater. I got to see The World's End early. Mm-hmm. We had a Q and A afterwards, and people who didn't have the microphone in a sixty person theater could be shouting their questions, and the people up front would still have trouble hearing them. Right, but that's unimportant because it's it's him doing his thing, and like. It was kind of weirdly fun to see him back in like his very eloquent takedown mode. Right. That's not the thing that I keep coming back hoping to see. I want the thing that was promised to me in the first episode when Mac was like, we can do the news, like, we can get the facts out to the people, we can educate them, but this isn't like an education, this is just a louder, more vitriolic voice for the side that is presumed to be correct. I agree with you to... A certain extent, at the same time, I feel like at least at points in season one, it did seem like they were trying to frame it as, here are the facts, these are what the candidates have said, versus this is what's actually happening. The final episode when he does the um, the information about the voting registration laws, like that's the good stuff. Right, and, and you're also starting to see some of that in the Jim storyline, which I like, where he's out on the political campaign trail and he's trying to be a quote-unquote good journalist and ask quote-unquote good questions and challenge the talking points that they're being given based on facts and statistics and things that the candidate has said in the past. And I like how, at least in that storyline, the show is allowing that idealism to emerge. It's, a, it's, it, it's, it's playing on that idea of, yes, this is how things should be done, but it's also acknowledging that can't always work. And I love how, in this episode, we just see, you know, th- th- there's so many scenes where Jim is about to start giving his little daily summary or whatever about whatever he needs to report on. And it just goes down the line of all the reporters, and they're all saying pretty much the exact same thing. And I like how they acknowledge that, yes, he is trying to ask the questions he thinks needs to be he thinks need to be asked. But even his other journalists, even if they might acknowledge, yeah, it would be nice if we could <laughs> report the news that way. They're just all so exhausted. <laughs> And they're just kind of like, that's not going to work. You can't, you can't do it. It's just that the system doesn't work that way. So it's allowing Sorkin to critique the media while also maintaining this, this sense of idealism. Yeah, and I mean, it's, it's fine that it's doing that. My main problem, though, is just the way that Jim goes about trying to get this information. I feel like if you were in that situation, you could find a more tactful way. 
And just the way that he phrased some of his questions. He's obviously a good reporter. He he digs up the quotes and he, you know, somehow knows the exact number of days between when the first quote was said and then the second quote, which is basically the same thing that was said the first time, except for like a, a little bit of added ambiguity. But the right. problem is that his isn't like, you know, can you explain the change? He says, what new information does the governor have that's made him change this? It's like, that's the most blunt leading question that's just it's not it doesn't feel right like you, you know it could just be like well the governor's had another 120 something days to think about it like we're constantly critiquing politicians for making scientific claims of certainty when they're not scientists and yet now we have a person who has who's just like saying i don't know and apparently that's a bad thing there are ways to do this and i feel like jim and it might just be because of the psychological state he's in He's not going about it correctly. I think that the show is doing that slightly on purpose because I feel like he's just been by will too much. Well, I, I, I feel like the show is in some ways positioning him as the new Will to a certain extent. Like, Will this season is is kind of, he at least for the past few episodes, he's backed off a little bit from being so preachy it's gotten it's gotten him into trouble so he's kind of worried about how corporate will react and so now jim is the one who's out on the campaign trail trying to to show people how it's done and i like that it's not fully going his way i i agree with you i like the fact that he's the one standing up saying hey why doesn't the romney campaign actually address this what's his actual plan and and those were legitimate criticisms that people brought up during the campaign i think you're right it's not the the smartest way to go about it i feel like if he really wanted to either attack romney or get somewhere he would try to play their game for a little while longer and maybe position himself in a way where he eventually he could maybe get that half hour interview he's clamoring for that's the thing, like, if you want, if, he goes from these antagonizing questions with these people to, can I get a half hour with the candidate? Why on earth would you ever think that you get a half hour with the candidate after acting that way? Right. Again, I don't know if that's the show just making things as black and white as possible. I could be more upset and angry than I am, just in the way that that whole thing is shaking out. I'm going to allow for some time for the storyline to develop before really putting my foot down on its neck the way that it ends like if if a if a presidential campaign kicked three people off of its press bus in the dead of night in the middle of nowhere because they were asking questions that's the story that every single one of those other reporters on the bus would write about the next day and that would detonate that candidacy Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, I hadn't even really thought about that. But I'm, I, I'm assuming the newsroom's not going to go that route, and it's just going to assume, oh, those other people were, were sheep and just part of the evil media system, and they're not going to report on that. It can't go that route, because we know that that's not how the Romney campaign was toppled. Well, it could if the show really wanted to pull some inglorious bastards type stuff, which I've been saying for a while now it should, and it should rewrite history. I'm just <laughs> picturing, like, in the middle of season three, something insane happening and like the entirety of humanity shifts honestly i think the best thing the newsroom could do right now the thing that would blow everyone's minds is if in the season two finale romney wins i was just gonna say that <laughs> and then it just sort of sets up from here on out we are no longer in reality 
anything is possible. It would be so perfect, so wonderful, if that was the literal last scene. Like, a giant montage, kind of like the uh, the most risable moment in this show's history, which was um, I'll Try to Fix You. Right. When the, the shooting of uh, Congresswoman Giffords, I believe. Yes. And, like, that whole thing. If they had that, like, some bombastic music, and they're like, you know, 76% of precincts are reporting. We know how, like, Ohio's going to swing. And then it has Will sitting at the desk saying with, like, with 70-something percent of the vote tallied, you know, AWN is now confident to report the next president of the United States is Mitt Romney. Cut to black. <laughs> Twitter would explode. I feel like everyone that's been hate-watching the show or gave up on the show in season one would immediately come back. <laughs> that would that would rock my socks. <laughs> But let's assume that that's not going to happen. I'm curious to see where this Jim storyline is going to go, because now he and Hallie and the other guy, whose name I don't know, are are on the side of the road. They're presumably going to rent cars and follow the campaign and report it like they feel it should be reported. But as we know, if the show sticks to reality, that can't really have much effect you know, there's the part of me that liked the preachiness in season one is happy to see that now Jim is the new Will and he's going to go show them how it needs to be done. But there's another part of my brain that's like, but will it really matter? You know, what, how far than they, what, what can they really do with that? The other good thing about last season was that there was, there was the one scene where Sloan was saying, I've been talking about the debt ceiling for like three weeks and it, the needle hasn't moved an inch. Like, people still believe that, you know, raising the debt ceiling means borrowing more money. Right. And, like, yeah, it's not doing anything because you're not real. <laughs> it was a nice way to tie in both the concept that people's opinions don't change even when they're given the right information and also tying it into the fact that we know that nothing changes. Right. There's a way that this show could get really dark really quickly, which is if they just subscribe to this nihilistic point of view that the world is an unyielding mechanism. <laughs> and that these people are powerless to influence it. Oh, man. That would be an incredible show. I'm not sure Aaron Sorkin is the person to deliver that show. <laughs> right after OWS gets kicked out of Zuccotti Park, like Dev Patel writes a very touching blog post and then jumps off the Brooklyn Bridge. <laughs> That's just like the first domino as they all start to topple. Wow. Wow. Aaron Sorkin, if you're listening, I hope you're taking notes. I was about to say, I've given this man at least six dynamite ideas. <laughs> wow, that would be really dark. Okay, well, before we move on to our main topic, the last thing I want to touch on is this Genoa stuff, because that seems to be the backbone of this season, if, if, if there is one. I was very skeptical about it when it was introduced, because as you mentioned, we know how it's going to turn out. But I kind of liked how it, it was handled last episode, and I like how it was handled this episode. I like how this season so far seems to be very focused on the process of gathering the news and figuring out the truth. And and they're having to make calls, they're having to get translations from Twitter, they're having to to meet people and try to figure out if these people can be trusted, if their sources are reliable... And I like all that stuff because even though we know that it's all going to blow up in their face, I, I like how it's convincing us that these smart, high-minded, preachy people 
could be fooled. And there are moments, like, there is a conversation with Charlie in this episode where he's basically like, this can't be real. And it's not like they're fully diving in head first. They do have doubts. Yeah, and it's great because there has been a through line. Charlie Skinner is a saint. (laughs) Because he's the one who's constantly saying, double confirmation. Yeah. Wait for confirmation. He's the only person who's like, it doesn't matter if we're first, it matters if we're right. It's good to see that he's keeping his hand on the tiller. And it will be interesting to see what it takes to get him to change his mind. And yeah. I am very much enjoying watching them do actual reporting. Even though the concept of getting tweets translated and faxed to you is weird. Yeah. <laughs> they even brought it up. Like, why doesn't your translator use email? And Maggie's like, I don't know. And it's just like, okay, why did you draw attention to that? <laughs> like, Well, it's because it makes the ending more dramatic when McKinsey says shut down the story. But then there's a fax coming in. A fax is way more dramatic than an email. I don't know, man. It was pretty dramatic when she sent that email to the entire company. <laughs> I'm not sure that was dramatic in the way Aaron Sorkin wanted. I mean, it definitely is a better visual for him to keep pulling papers out of the faxes and being like, it's about a cricket player. It's about tea and then throwing them on another desk. I just feel yeah. bad for the guy who comes in the next morning. He's like, why are all these papers on my desk? <laughs> How many trees have we killed? But no, it's it's fun to watch that happening because it's it's just awesome to watch people do the news and put a news show together and not just be like, hey, Will, this thing happened. Like, why don't you come up with a five-minute rant about it? It's like, no, let's actually get some facts. Let's do the due diligence. Let's get our sources. And yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how this blows up. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping the show can keep this balance between showing the process, keeping things kind of grounded in certain ways, but then also allowing some idealism to seep through in, in elements like the, the gym storyline, for example. If it, can, if it can keep walking that tightrope, I think well, we could have a great show on our hands. So Here's the thing. I feel like it would be better if, instead of being like Will, Jim was more like Mr. Smith goes to Washington. That's an idealism that was that's grounded in morality and a sense of justice and fairness. Whereas most of the idealism in this show is grounded in a sense of righteous indignation that no one agrees with you or does what you think they should be doing. I think the problem is, though, that the, the Mr. Smith goes to Washington type of idealism, it's grounded in ignorance to a certain extent. From what I, It's been a while since I saw that movie, but from what I remember, Jimmy Stewart, he doesn't really quite understand how the system works, right? And that's part of why, why he's so idealistic and why he acts the way he does. I feel like in the newsroom, or at least Aaron Sorkin, he's a bit more cynical to a certain extent. You know, these characters will acknowledge the world works a certain way, and we don't want to work that way anymore. So I, I, I'm not sure if they could ever achieve that copra-esque style of uh, of idealism. I think that's why they got rid of the original opening credits. Oh, maybe. <laughs> yeah, the capra thing isn't working. Let's just stop <laughs> that. <laughs> All right, well... um. Let's move on to our main topic for this episode. I don't know how lo- how long we'll we'll talk about this, so maybe it won't be our main topic. Maybe it'll just be our final topic. But uh, when we were you and I were talking before we started recording, and you said that you really liked how they kind of imploded certain elements from the first season that had carried over. 
I'm not sure if you said you liked it, but, but you thought it was interesting that they were doing that. Can you elaborate a little bit? One of the big problems from the last season was the relationships that they were trying to build. And I like the fact that rather than drag it on, like you said, they really did seem to throw some dynamite under the foundation and just hit the plunger, like in the first episode. Yeah. The YouTube video comes out, let's not talk about the laundromat scene. <laughs> and that just, it destroys Don and Maggie, which is great because, like, everyone kept saying that Don was a terrible person, but, like, Maggie didn't love him either. What was she doing with him? Like, that's one of those relationships where it's bad, but it's not really fault. There's no fault in it. It's just a shitty situation that two people are too cowardly or, like, nice to try to pull out of. Right. So it was good that they did that, and they did it in a way that allows both of them to feel wounded and yet to know that they're doing the right thing. Like, neither of them seems to be on the warpath to try to get the other back. Yeah, and that is nice. I like that. That would also feel very cliche and kind of been there, done that. Right. So that's an intelligent storytelling choice. I like the fact that Jim gets off and, like, goes onto the bus and hits the campaign trail, and that when he finds out that Maggie's single, he doesn't sprint back in the rain. You know, he, he knows now that she's a poison pill. Like, you don't want to go there because she said she was going to break up with Don, and then she didn't. Right. And I like what Lisa did. I don't know if we'll ever see her again. But the one thing that's weird, though, and I, like I said, I like the fact that they destroyed that. I like the fact that they've got a new opening title. And I like the fact that they brought Will down, but have now started moving him back up again. So at least you can taste that defeat. Like, he's not as cocksure as he used to be. Right. This episode, they also did something weird, which is apparently a bunch of seasoned reporters don't know how to work a voice recorder. <laughs> yes. So they took out the uh, the blackmailing subplot that was going to give them carte blanche. So now they have, again, the sense of worry, the, the real stakes if they were to do something wrong, which I think we're going to see when the Genoa thing explodes. I wanted to ask you, because you do this podcast, so maybe maybe you know something that I don't know or I missed something. Whatever happened to the tech-savvy guy who was going to murder Will? You're right. <laughs> they have not touched on that at all. They were like, oh, I'm not done yet. Ha ha ha. LOL, JK. And then, like, Neil was sitting there in the dark looking at that, and he was like, uh-oh. And then it's just like Terry Crews is gone. Neil's, like, on Occupy. He's apparently given up his trolling thing, which is good, because that was another stupid thing. But now we just are like... Wasn't there a threat? Yeah, I'm I'm guessing that that's going to come back into play in the second half of the season. Because I feel like, you're right, that's an awfully big thing for them to just forget about. They could have easily done something like, man, it sure is good the FBI found that guy. Yep. <laughs> Instead, they're just like, yeah, let's just forget about that. Yeah, I'm hoping that Terry Crews will just randomly show up in an episode and be like, hey, I've been on vacation, but I'm back. <laughs> the the very discreet bodyguard that you hired after me, I sent him home. Now I'm <laughs> That would be perfect. Some guy who you never noticed in any of the background scenes will suddenly like wave to Terry and then just like exit left. Yes, and then if we rewatch every previous episode this season, we'll realize that he's there in the background yeah. <laughs> the whole time. Oh, that would that would be fun. You're right. I actually I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, that was a major subplot that they have not touched on at all. Pr there is presumably someone still out there who wants to kill Will. Which is again, I know that we're on the Genoa thing, but that's kind of big. That's one way to they could end season two. You know, if they're not going to go the Mitt Romney as president thing. End it with uh, them killing off Will or something. It would be incredible, Aaron, get your pen out. Yeah. Incredible if Will is shot through the window right as the presidential uh, you know, election results are about to be done 
and someone's like, oh my God, you know, we have to get Will to the hospital. Like, who's going to sit in the chair, tell the, the world who the new president is? And then I don't know who you want to choose, Aaron, but I'm going to go with Dev Patel. <laughs> He's the next big name in news. I like it. That would be, that would be really perfect. Um, or they could do it so they realize, oh, the Genoa story is actually true. But before he can go on the air to report it, something happens and he just he can't do it. <laughs> yeah. And like, but other than that, other than that one missing plot point, I like the fact that they've kind of kept the characters, but restructured and reshuffled them so that, you know, some of the more grating aspects are gone. The other big thing they do this episode is, as you mentioned, they throw out the blackmail story. They can no longer blackmail corporate, both because Reese Lansing just doesn't care, and because they apparently did not actually record that conversation. At I couldn't tell one. if like they didn't record it or if they accidentally deleted it while trying to play it. I don't think it matters. Here's why I actually really like it. I like that scene because it establishes that Reese doesn't care no matter what, and it also allows that gag of where they maybe uh, didn't record it right, which is... To be fair, it's sort of silly, but it's also a very Sorkin thing to do. We saw it in the first season, as you mentioned, with the McKinsey email situation. So people having technological mishaps are a frequent joke in this show. And I thought that it worked in this case. And I'm honestly very glad that that happened. I think that was a great decision because while I liked how the blackmail allowed them to wrap up season one... I think that this is going to be a real it's it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out now because unlike the Genoa stuff we don't know where this is headed. So this is one of the few elements of the show that could be genuinely surprising. It's just one of those things where I don't know if it was when he went back to restructure. I feel like season 2 is supposed to be something radically different than what we're seeing now because even at the end of that episode, the season 1 finale, Leona says like if you're going to shoot don't miss. Right. It's like a ridiculous scene. Like everyone's cheering and Bob O'Reilly's playing in the background and everyone's like, yeah, we'll go fuck him up. And then he like says his thing and then everyone's cheering and it's like wonderful. Life is great. And I feel like that was supposed to be like his two handed downwards thrust of the knife into the dragon's heart. And instead they had to turn it into something else so that all the victory has been sapped out of that. I just don't know if that was their original intention. Right. But I, I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about how in some ways it does seem like Aaron Sorkin has been listening to critics and he is trying to tone down the idealism. He is trying to make things feel a little bit more realistic, a little bit more grounded in, in, in real life. And this is another case in which he's taken what happened in, in season one and he's gone, well... Maybe it's not that simple. And I like that. I, li I like that he's continuing to allow us the illusion of simplicity. And he, we do have certain situations where what we want to happen and, or how we wish things happened will actually happen. But then there will be other situations where he turns that on its head. And so I, I like that he's continuing to do that, even in this stuff involving the land scenes. The only thing that I 
I should say is that sooner or later he's he's going to have to stop. Sooner or later he's got to stop destroying the things that didn't work and start making some more new things like Genoa that do work. That's true. He shot the first two episodes or had written them before he knew that he needed to do something else. I think he had. St- I think he they had shot two episodes, I want to say, or at least had started shooting two episodes when Aaron Sorkin realized it, he didn't want to structure things that way and went back to the drawing board and, and switched things around a little bit. I'm hoping that since this episode, like I said, seemed like a lot of build-up, I'm right. hoping that now is when it kind of gets off to the races. Like, this is the final... We're, we're a third of the way through now because it's only a nine-episode season, so I'm hoping that this is the point where it's like, okay, we're done dealing with last season, and now let's just kick stuff into real high gear and ramp up towards the finale now yeah and it'll be interesting to see if they go back to the flashbacks at all for the remainder of the season until the very end because in that first episode when marcia gay harden is is there and they're doing this back and forth structure i was skeptical that they could keep pulling that off for multiple episodes and i'm glad that they haven't done that anymore i gotta agree with you there it's unnecessary really. We know to a certain extent what's going to happen, so now we just need to see how it happens. I guess my fear is it's a nine-episode season. We're on episode three. They only are just now starting to really believe that this thing happened. Right. How quickly are they going to get to it? How quickly are they going to do the... Like, Is all of season three going to be, okay, now I have the information, now I have to defend you, idiots? Because you don't get someone like Marcia Gay Harden and just give her, like, four minutes at the bumper on either end of the season, you know? Maybe. <laughs> if it's in your financial best interest to do so. <laughs> it's weird that they would have her set up and, like, they would do all that. And, I mean, she made an impact in her brief scenes. Well, it is brilliant because it allows them to market the season with her in it. <laughs> when maybe she's not actually a major part of the season. So, yeah, who knows? Maybe she won't pop up to, again until episode nine on the one hand i think that would be okay on the other hand i think i kind of agree with you maybe it would be better if they wrap up this genoa stuff more quickly because we've seen two episodes now of them starting to realize this could be a real thing maybe give us one or two more episodes of them continuing to find other sources and start to really believe that this thing is real and then uh show us the fallout i'd like it to be wrapped up by the end of the season oh i think it definitely will be one way or another there's just a part of me that hopes maybe they'll wrap it up by end of episode seven let's say and then the last two episodes will be the fallout from that and then setting up some new uh twists for season three that's what i mean i want like the trial to be over by episode nine yeah you know have the heroes either newly risen or fallen going into the next season but don't just be like okay now i've got the story now let's go to trial because like that would be awful oh yeah that would be terrible you remember the um the west wing right yes it's been a while since i've seen the west wing but i remember most of it there was an issue i'm gonna be vague because of spoilers but there was an issue with the president that was going to involve either a criminal prosecution or a special counsel on the house of representatives And at some point, this massive trial that would have taken up so much time, they basically say, you know what, 
If you do this one thing, we'll forget about it. Was that during the Sorkin years? Can you remind me what, what it was? It was the third season. It was right after he announced that he was going to be running for president again because uh, he, uh, you know, it's not really a spoiler. He has MS. Right. And so, you know, everyone's like, you lied. You didn't tell us. You didn't disclose your illness to anyone. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, like, they they do, like, one episode of having a trial. And then after that, they're like, if you accept a censure on the floor of the house... We'll just forget about it. Right. And so that's what I'm concerned about because like it, that was like midway through the season that they did that. So I don't want like midway through season three of the newsroom for someone to be like, you know, Will, if you go on and say that you're really sorry, you know, just do a retraction. <laughs> yeah, that would be awful if they've set up this thing in the first episode of season two that's supposed to be really terrible and that it could have devastating consequences. And then if the consequences turn out to not be all that dire, then uh, that yeah, that would be disappointing. I mean, obviously, they aren't going to pull a Game of Thrones, and <laughs> at least they're probably not going to pull a Game of Thrones <laughs> and and have anything too major happen. There won't be some really major cast changes happening. Say no Dev Patel suicide, no Will getting shot by a sniper. That's <laughs> probably not going to happen, but hopefully there will at least be some sort of professional consequences or, or some real change in the show. Kind of like how, um, do you watch Mad Men? Yes, I love that show. That show has been really good about every season or two completely setting things off in a new direction in a way that feels organic. And that is also satisfying, where there are consequences to people's actions, but they don't upset the balance of the show too much. Wouldn't it be great if um, at the end of the season, Will and everyone lose their jobs and then Al Gore shows up to invite them to come on current TV? <laughs> that would be perfect. Or, hey guys, you know, Al Jazeera is trying to uh, make their mark in the United States. <laughs> So that would be perfect. Aaron, that's at least 10 ideas. <laughs> All right. Is there anything else about this episode you'd like to, to talk about? Um, probably best moment of the night was Sloan threatening to remove someone's knuckles with a ball peen hammer. Oh, yeah, that was great. <laughs> I really I, I really liked Sloan in this episode. She can be kind of hit or miss for me at times, especially in season one. There were moments where she kind of felt like she was just there to be the sexy one. I mean, it was awkward when Mac was just like, I want your legs. Right. It's a little sexist, but okay. I like how, to a certain extent, she's still a fairly two-dimensional character, but they're making her a really enjoyable two-dimensional character. Yeah. She's fun to watch, which is more than you can say for well, most of the people up until this season. Right. The The only other thing I want to say about this episode is the title, Willie Pete, which refers to the phonetic translation of white phosphorus, which didn't make sense to me, and I'm not sure... That's another one of those things where it's just like, Sorkin will take the shortcut, where people will just know things. Like, in the first season, like, oh, The Rock's on Twitter, and he said, like, you know, news that's going to stun the world, proud to be an American. Charlie's just like, He's got a brother who's a Navy SEAL. Why would Charlie know that? <laughs> also, who has their phone set off to go off whenever a tweet appears in their, their timeline? Look, Charlie took his kids to see both Journey to the Center of the Earth movies. <laughs> okay. He actually really loves the Fast and Furious movies. Yes, he loves The Rock. Okay. Uh, but yeah, that, that was the one thing that I was like, wait, Willie Pete? How do you get that from White Phosphorus? I don't understand. He's just like, Willie Pete, and he's like, that's the phonetic translation for White Phosphorus. 
he's like, oh, the next tweet is like 32 minutes later. Why would it be 32 minutes later? And it's like, I don't know. Maybe what if he fell asleep? It was late at night. <laughs> yeah, he's playing. He's playing Angry Birds while there's chemical warfare going on outside. That's the crazy thing is one of these days they're going to have to draw a diagram of what is happening in this village, because the way that I've heard it is there were American hostages. The town was filled with innocents and hostiles. And so the way that we decided to deal with it was to, like, blow up the place with sarin gas. Is that really the best way to rescue a hostage? Yeah, I'm not quite sure exactly what the situation was. I'm still a bit unclear as to why exactly they supposedly deployed sarin gas. All we know for sure is that supposedly there was sarin gas. And that it, feel, it feels like that's the important thing that they're going to keep hammering on. The details don't matter. The guy in the diner said so much stuff. I was just lost. Oh, Sweeney? Uh, yeah, because he was just like, you know, we, we had uh, HE rounds and we, you know, shot white phosphorus and then, you know, some other thing. And then we, we had atropine and like just like, slow the fuck down. I have no idea what you're saying right now. <laughs> oh, yeah. That conversation was so hard to follow. Like, I like how uh, Dantana comes in and is like, I need someone who, with military experience or whatever, who can come with me, who knows all the acronyms. And Mackenzie goes because she has experience as a military journalist. But I was confused as a viewer. I was like, whoa, you're throwing out way too many numbers and letters there, pal. Okay. I'm kind of wondering if Sorkin's like, this doesn't make any sense. I'm just going to have them speak really fast in a lot of obfuscating dialogue. It's the Sorkin version of techno jargon, where whenever there's something that needs to happen in a movie, you can always count on the computer geek or the scientist to throw out some jargon to explain how they're going to fix it. I was about to say, I understand the mechanism for time travel in the movie Primer more than I understand <laughs> Operation Genoa. So, <laughs> Time travel, that's another element they need to introduce into the newsroom. That's another one for you, Sorkin. <laughs> That would be a way that they could get out of this whole uh, reality thing that they're trapped by. Yeah, that would be fantastic. At some point, Mac, Will, and uh, Jim are all just like, God, or, and Neil would all just like, guys, you don't understand. We're from the future. <laughs> we know things. You think Jim has a former college roommate and a sister who worked at like the two best places? You're crazy. How could that ever be true? <laughs> Suddenly... We'll get an episode of the newsroom that's like the uh, alternate timeline episode on Community. Then the show will just go off in a new direction. We can have an evil timeline where Will has a mustache. It'll be great. No, he would look terrible in a mustache. <laughs> All right. I think that'll wrap it up for this episode of Navigating the Newsroom here on Film Geek Radio. We would love to get your feedback on the show. You can email us at navigatingthenewsroom at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at filmgeekradio.com. You can also subscribe to the show through iTunes, so if you liked this episode, please write us a review. That would really help us get the word out about the program. You can also donate to us through the website. We really appreciate your help. And don't forget to check out other great shows on Film Geek Radio, including Cinema Fix, The Thin Place, and our latest weekly podcast all about the final season of the Showtime series, Dexter, Avenging Angels. Brian, thanks so much for joining me tonight. I'm, I'm sorry Andrew couldn't make it. I know he was really looking forward to talking with you. So thanks for serving as my replacement co-host on this episode. I hope that I have uh, lived up to the standard set previously. Oh, it was great. This is I... my 9-11 moment. Maybe now <laughs> I will become 
the leader of this podcast. <laughs> or the lead writer of the newsroom, if the right people are listening. <laughs> I am available. I can be had for cheap. Well, where can people find you online and, and where can they find more of your work? Uh, I write at DearFilm.net, where I am the executive editor. I also do the Outside the Envelope podcast, which you can find at podcast.dearfilm.net. And I write for the film stage, and I host the film stage show. All of those things can be found at thefilmstage.com. And uh, Twitter, twitter.com slash Brian J. Rowe. You can find some of my writing at filmgeekradio.com and moviemezzanine.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at writerandrew. If you do follow me, be sure to send me a message and let me know you're a listener, and I will follow you back. That'll wrap it up for this episode. I'm Andrew Johnson, and that's the way the cookie crumbles. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!